0: Good morning, everyone. Great to see you. Things are a little different this morning. This is normally when the preacher would be dismissing our older children to go back to Sunday school. But since we're doing communion this Sunday, you'll be staying in the service with us. So, uh, we're so happy to have you here. It's also nice to see some worship team members up here that were part of our launch team, but haven't been here in a while. So that's a bit unusual and was really a joy for me to see. But the most obvious thing that's different, if you come often, you're probably used to seeing Caleb up here preaching. And if you came in a bit late and weren't here last Sunday, you might have somehow missed that. In fact, uh, Nicole had their first child about a week and a half ago, and so he's taking something kind of like a paternity leave. Um, I I told him when I showed up at nine this morning, and he was already here working. I don't think he quite knows what a paternity leave is, but I'm stepping in in his stead this morning. I am Glenn Butner. I teach theology over at Sterling College, and I've been coming here for a while, but uh, some of you I still haven't met, so hopefully maybe we'll get the chance to meet a few of you after the service. Uh, As I was prepping this sermon, um, I thought, Caleb, you might like to see what you have to look forward to now that you have a child, because my daughter Sophia came in and she sat down next to me as I was doing my first walkthrough with this sermon. So I like to go off in a room by myself and just preach to the air and kind of get used to what I'm saying. And she came in and really got engaged. She sat down and she was nodding and she kept saying, oh yeah, oh yeah. (laughs) Until about 10 minutes in and she jumped up, ran out of the room, slammed the door. So um, the initial reviews are in. I start really strong and then it's going to get pretty controversial. So brace yourselves and we'll see how it goes. Um, But it is good to be with you this morning. We are continuing a sermon series on a life of joy where we're going through the book of Philippians and I do have a passage that's a bit more complicated this morning, starting in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, because we're looking at the balance between God's grace and our work. And this is a topic that has split the church and history, so hopefully Sophia running out and slamming the door is not a foretaste of anything going on this morning. But just to make sure, just to play it safe, why don't we open up in prayer before I really walk us through this text. So if you'll join me for a moment. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to be here preaching this morning, Lord, and I pray that as I speak, your Spirit might guide me in the words that I say, and that your Spirit may also guide the congregation as they listen to these words, that by your Spirit's power, real transformation may be brought about, and I pray for that Spirit to be present here in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so I'm going to read through the first couple of verses here of Philippians. I'm going to be sticking really closely to the text On this sermon. So, a lot of times up on the screen, like you see right now, you're going to see part of the text I'm looking at, but it still might be worth pulling your Bible out, opening up to chapter 2, and then you can follow along with us as we go. So, I'm going to be starting for now in verse 12, where Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So already, you might be scratching your head just a little bit, wondering how do we interpret this passage? Because on the one hand, we're told we are to work out our own salvation. We're supposed to be doing something. And on the other hand, we're told that it's God who's actually working in us to be able to be working in the first place. So how do we balance these two things? How do we understand what Paul is talking about here? As a good rule of thumb, whenever you're trying to interpret scripture, it's really helpful to be looking at the context of the passage that you're looking at. But that's especially the case when you see the word therefore right up there on the screen. When you see the word therefore, you know that what the biblical author is saying is in response to what has come before. So to really understand what Paul is saying here, we need to go back have a bit of a rerun from the sermon that Eric preached last week, looking at the first part of Philippians chapter 2. So to summarize, in context there, Paul is saying that Christ is our example in righteousness. We should have the same attitude that he does. He was in the very form of God, and yet he emptied himself and humbled himself, becoming human, taking the form of a servant, even to the point of death on a cross. And so God exalted him, to his right hand and gave him the name above every name so that all creation would bow before him and confess him as Lord. That's who Christ was, and we, like Christ, ought to humble ourselves, treat others as more important than ourselves, and love in a way that mirrors Christ's sacrificial love. Immediately after that, he says, Therefore, work out your own salvation, for it is God who is, willing, who is working in you to will and to work. And he puts it in this context of, I'm gone, but still do this even though I'm gone. So how does this command connect with what we heard preached about last week? How does it command, this command relate to what Paul said beforehand? One of the things I think Paul is doing here is helping us avoid two possible misinterpretations of the earlier part of Philippians chapter 2. Because you might hear what he's just said, and you might walk away with the completely wrong conclusion. I see two risks that are actually present for really common misinterpretations of what Paul's talking about here. The first one is a fancy theology word, and since I am a theology professor, I like to always give you a little bit of academic vocabulary here that's the professor in me, but it's the word antinomianism. Antinomianism, so anti means to be against. In Greek, namos means law. So these are people who are against the law. Basically, these are people who say, because I have been saved by grace, I don't need to worry about any of God's old teachings about how we ought to be good. Because Jesus saved me, I don't need to worry about ethics and morality. Ultimately, antinomianism is the wrong belief that because we are saved by grace, we don't need to worry at all about doing good. And so I can imagine when the Philippians read this letter, or probably it was read aloud, and so the members of the congregation like you would be hearing this read to them when they gathered for worship, I can imagine somebody hearing Paul's teaching and saying, okay, so Jesus was in the form of God. He was exalted to the right hand of the Father after his ministry. Every tongue is going to declare him Lord. I am not like Jesus at all. I am definitely not in the form of God. I'm never going to be exalted to the Father's right hand, sharing all of his authority. And I certainly hope that every tongue does not declare me Lord. In fact, I hope no tongue ever ever declares me as Lord because that would be heresy and idolatry. I am not Lord. I'm just a guy. And so if that's what Jesus did, we might think, I can't do that. that. That shouldn't be me because I'm so different from Jesus. And so I'm actually not going to try to do what Paul's just told me to do. I'm not going to try and follow his example and humble myself because he's so different that it doesn't even make any sense for me to put in that effort. So antinomianism often takes two forms. One is, I can't do this, so I won't try. I can't be Jesus, completely true, so I'm not going to try and follow the example he set for me. It's pointless. But sometimes it also takes the form of, I don't need to do that, so I don't have to worry about it. Jesus came to earth to save us. I wasn't sent here to save you. Jesus died on the cross to pay for my sins. I don't pay for anybody's sins. Jesus was exalted to the right hand of the Father. He's interceding for you now. I don't have to do that, so I don't really need to worry about doing good things for you because you've got Jesus and because I've got Jesus. And that's antinomianism. The 4th of July is coming up soon, and I really liked when my wife and I, and uh, at that point, we only had uh, one kid. When we moved here, um, actually, I guess we had a second by the time the first 4th of July rolled around, but we moved to Sterling, really liked all the things that Sterling did for the 4th of July. and I was excited to see they had a three-on-three basketball tournament. I thought, this is a town of 2,500 people, and so there aren't that many basketball players anyway. I played, I was captain of my varsity team in high school. I played AAU basketball, I'm 6'4". I think I got a pretty good chance of putting a winning team together and there's a cash prize, so let's do this. So I showed up out there, um, early 30s at my point, get to the first team, the guy I'm guarding is about this tall, and I ask, where did you come from? And he said, oh, I'm on the varsity basketball team at in College. And I said, okay, this is not the basketball tournament I thought I was signing up for. (laughs) And sure enough, we didn't do that great. Uh, A couple years later, actually, Caleb was on a three-on-three tournament team with me. Caleb and Paul and um, Eric, actually I think you were on the team too, right? And we did a little better, we still did not come out as champions. And I was the weakest link there. So I now look at the basketball tournament and I say, there's really no point in me signing up for that. My whole body hurts after I do it and there's no chance I'm winning that cash prize. But let's imagine for a moment that somehow I had more connections than you realize or I won some sort of like drawing or something and LeBron James agrees to be on my team next summer. So we go out or I guess in a month, we go out and we take on the three-on-three teams from McPherson College and all the other colleges that think that they're ringers until LeBron James shows up. At that point, I can just step back and kind of laugh at the other teams and sit on the sideline because I think LeBron can take all of them on his own. I don't need to do anything. And there's a sense in which that's true with Jesus. As much as LeBron James is better than I am at basketball, Jesus is far better than I am At being righteous. There's a much bigger gap between Jesus and me in terms of being good than there is a gap between LeBron James and I in terms of being good at basketball. Much bigger gap. And so we might think, well, he's doing all the work. I'm just going to sit back here and kind of clap. I don't need to do anything. In a sense, that's true. You don't need to do a single thing to earn your salvation. And yet, God has set things up so that he still wants us out there on the court and participating. So what Paul is saying here, I think, when he says work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling, is that we're not supposed to use Jesus as our Savior as an excuse to not try and be good. Paul is saying do not use God's grace as an excuse to persist in evil. We can't say, look what God did for me in Jesus. I'm going to go on and live my life the way I always have. That is not what Paul's trying to say here and pointing us to the example of Jesus Christ. And so therefore, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. Go and try and do good things. There's a second risk, though, and this is the risk of works righteousness. And I think this is often the more common risk that we fall into. Works righteousness is the wrong idea that our good deeds, that our moral action, earn us God's grace and salvation. If we do enough good, that God will then save us and favor us. That's works righteousness. And it's a complete distortion of the gospel. And so I can also imagine the Philippians, when they first hear Paul's letter read aloud to them, and they hear, have the same attitude as that of Jesus. Be humble, serve other people like Jesus did. Put other people as if they're more important than you, just like Jesus did. And then they hear what Jesus did and it ends with, therefore God exalted him and gave him the name above all names. You might think, oh, okay, I see how this works. If I'm humble like Jesus, I get exalted like Jesus. If I love people like Jesus, I get exalted like Jesus. So I need to work really hard so that I can be saved. But that would be a complete misinterpretation of what Paul is saying here because he's not saying do good to be saved. He's saying Jesus saved you, so do good. That's a very important distinction there. Oftentimes, works righteousness can be manifest in a guilty conscience. We set a high moral bar for ourselves. I have to be as humble as Jesus, and then we don't live up to it. I feel a little proud. And so then I condemn myself. Well, I'm not being good enough. I'm not earning my salvation. And so I put in more effort and I set the bar even higher and I fall even more short and then I condemn myself even more and feel more guilty. And so I try even harder and I fail even more and eventually I just burn out. I say, you know what? I give up. I can't do this. It's not going to work. That's not what God is talking about. That's not what Paul is writing about here. Or sometimes the opposite happens. Instead of recognizing I can't live up to Jesus' standard, we're too proud. And we start to think, yeah, I'm great. I'm a Christian. I'm so much better than all of y'all. How many of y'all are up here preaching this morning? Caleb didn't ask you to preach. He asked me to preach. I must be awesome. Um, my daughter thought so, at least until the 10-minute mark, which we passed and nobody has left, so thank you. Um, that's pride. That, that's not What Paul is advocating here. In fact, he's saying the exact opposite. He's not saying be proud because of the good you can do in Jesus. He's saying be humble like Jesus. So works righteousness is wrong. Yes, work out your own salvation, but we need to recognize it's God who works in you in order to work out your salvation. It's not you, it's God. So work hard, but rely on God's grace. Don't think that you've earned anything, for it is God who works in you to will and work his good pleasure. Okay, well, how does that exactly work, though? God is working in me so that I can work. What does that mean? Well, again, I think if we look at the context, we can understand a bit more. Instead of looking backwards now, I want to look forward. And I'm going to skip a few verses for a minute. We're going to come back to verse 14 through 18. But for now, I actually want to go to verse 19. And Paul actually changes the subject a little bit. He's encouraged the Philippians to work out their salvation. But then he says, and guess what? I'm going to send you some people to help you out in doing this. But when we see the way that Paul talks about these people that are going to help, we can have a better understanding of what Paul thinks about when it comes to works and grace. So we're going to start in verse 19 where he talks about Timothy. Timothy that he's going to send to the Philippians. And so here's what he says in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Verse 20. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So Paul says, don't worry, I'm going to send you somebody to help you do this. His name is Timothy and he has proven worth. So he has shown that he knows how to do good works. But it might help us to understand a little bit what Paul's talking about here if we know a little bit more about who Timothy is. And in fact, Paul wrote two letters to Timothy giving him ministry advice. And so we know a good amount about who Timothy was. And in the second letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, or at least the second one that we have that's in the Bible, Paul starts that letter off by reminding Timothy, hey, here's who you are and here's how you're able to do the ministry that you've been called to. And so... In 2 Timothy 1 5, Paul says this. Paul says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, Timothy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So what we see here is Paul saying, Look, I know where you came from. I know your family. I trust your character in part because I saw your mother's character, your mother's faith. I saw your grandmother's faith. You see, who we become and the character we develop doesn't happen in a vacuum. We have different moral influences in our life that help us become who we are. And a lot of times the influences in our life end up having a big effect on who we turn out to be. Back in Philippians 2 verse 22, Paul describes Timothy. He says, as a son with a father, he has served with me. Or another interpretation, as a son to a father, he has served with me. Timothy and Paul kind of have this spiritual father-son relationship going on. And it's really interesting, if you look in 2 Timothy, Paul doesn't mention anything about Timothy's dad, only his mom. And if you look at the book of Acts, the historical narrative of the early church, we see Paul meeting Timothy for the first time in Acts 16.1, where Luke writes this, Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, a son of a Jewish woman who was a believer but his father was a Greek. No mention of his father having faith. And so here again, I think the circumstances of Timothy's family, his mom is encouraging him to develop character and to be able to do good works, but his dad doesn't seem to be a Christian. He's never called a believer anywhere. In fact, he set off in contrast with his faithful mom. And scripture doesn't say this for sure, but I can imagine that that lack of a father figure in the faith made it really natural for Timothy to turn to Paul to find a spiritual father figure there. Because his biological father doesn't seem to believe in Christ, or at least isn't exemplary in that, he turns to a spiritual father in Paul. And so throughout the New Testament, we see Paul and Timothy building this really great relationship together to the point where half of Paul's letters are actually addressed from Paul and Timothy. Now, Paul gets most of the credit. He's the apostle. He's the one kind of guiding the text, but Timothy's included in the greeting because they work so closely together. And so the circumstances of Timothy's family has led to him developing into the sort of worker that we see him being praised for. And across scripture, we see that God providentially is working behind things like this. So in Acts 17, Paul's preaching and he says to the people of Athens, God has determined the exact times and places for everybody. He determined who Timothy's family was gonna be and he knew how that family dynamic would lead to him being discipled by Paul. Or in the Old Testament, At the time of David, God knew, and he prophesied, or he worked through the prophets to say, hey, David, here's what your son Solomon's gonna do. And he knew what Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was gonna do and how it was gonna lead to the dividing of the kingdom. And he knew how many generations later, Jesus Christ was going to be descended from David. God knows and determines who you are, what your family is, when you live, where you live, and all of these are factors in our moral development. We build our character in the context of relationships and community. And so when scripture says God is working in you to will and work according to his good pleasure, the first way that God does this is by providentially setting the moral influences that build our character. So I look at my parents. My parents are really hardworking. They always have been. And I think I'm pretty hardworking, sometimes too hardworking. And I see I get that from my parents. I learned that from them. My parents... Sometimes have a short temper and can be quarrelsome. And guess what? I can have a short temper and be quarrelsome. And I get that from them as well. And that's true of all of you. If you think about it, you can see these patterns where the family that God has given you has helped shape who you end up becoming. And the same is true for Timothy. He is able to have proven his worth because God providentially put him in a place where he could develop such worth. But even more important than this, if we go back to 2 Timothy chapter 1 and read the next verse, after talking about Timothy's family, Paul's reminding Timothy, hey, here's who you are. And he says, For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Notice the same balance is kind of happening here. I remind you, Timothy, fan into flame, the gift of God. It's God's gift, you fan it into flame. That seems kind of like a paradox. How, How does this fit together? Before we fully get there, I think we need to understand what exactly this gift is. And though Paul doesn't use the explicit language of Holy Spirit here, he's not using the proper name of the Holy Spirit, I think it's pretty clear that's what he's talking about. I'll give you a couple of reasons. For one, he uses the imagery of a flame and a gift. Fan into flame the gift of God. But the Holy Spirit often appears and is described with language of fire. So Pentecost, tongues of fire come down on the disciples. Or Paul in his letter to the Thessalonians, he says, don't put out the Spirit's fire. And so here he's saying fan into flame the gift of God. What's one of the greatest gifts of God? And through what person does the Father give gifts? The Holy Spirit. So we've already got two images that are often used to describe the Spirit here. And this gift, Paul says, Timothy received through the laying on of hands. Now this worked a bit differently in the apostolic age. So we just raised our hands to bless college students. Sometimes you lay hands on people now um, to symbolize things, but um, I don't believe that we still have full apostolic authority. I'm not going to get into the whole theology of the Holy Spirit. I do think we have a lot of spiritual power. But the apostles, when they laid hands in Acts, you tend to see dramatic miracles and visible signs that the Holy Spirit has now been given. Happens all throughout Acts. And so when Paul says he's laying hands here on Timothy so that he receives the flame and the gift, I think we can picture this same sort of thing happening. As Timothy is growing in the faith, Paul symbolically gives him the Holy Spirit through his apostolic role. And then he says, God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power of love and self-control. If you look in Galatians, what are the fruits of the spirit? They include things like love and self-control. Where does our power to do miracles come from? The Holy Spirit. So everything in this verse leads me to think that Paul is pointing to the Holy Spirit. So he's reminding Timothy, here's who you are. You are the person that God providentially gave a godly family to help you build character. And then you're the person that has received the Holy Spirit. And that's how you're supposed to carry out your ministry. How does God work in us to will and work according to his good pleasure? Primarily because God pours his spirit into us to enable us to will and work for his good pleasure. Without that spirit, I'm not going to really be able to accomplish anything. With that Holy Spirit, we can start to do good. I think we have one more insight we can learn about this from the next person that Paul promises to send to the Philippians, and that's Epaphroditus, who he begins speaking about in verse 25. So Paul says, good news, I'm going to send Epaphroditus. You were worried about him because he almost died, but God had mercy on him. And even fundamentally behind everything else we've talked about, how is it that God is working in me so that I can will and work according to his good pleasure? God graciously gives life. And that's the prerequisite for any of our good actions. Epaphroditus can continue to be the good worker that Paul calls him because God gave him life. Any good thing that we ever do is only possible first because God created us and second because God sustains us in life. So how could I possibly step back and assume the posture of works righteousness and say, God, I did something good for you, you owe me, when the only way I was able to do it is because God gave me life, when the character that I have to be able to do it only happened because God providentially put me in the right circumstances and because my ability is entirely rooted in the role of the Holy Spirit. I can't say, God, look what I did. You owe me because God really did it. I didn't do very much at all. And so Paul is clearly rejecting the path of works righteousness here. We can't say, God, you owe me because of this good work that I've done. There's no hint of works righteousness in Philippians 2. And yet, remember how Paul talks about Epaphroditus in verse 25. He says, I'm sending you, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. He's in the spiritual fight. He's working to do ministry. He is working out his salvation, just like I've challenged you Philippians to do so. And he's following the example of Christ in that. There is also no hint of antinomianism here. Paul commends Timothy and Epaphroditus because they're doing good, and yet he never even hints that any of the good that they've done is contributing to their earning salvation. So, this has all been very theoretical at this point. How do we actually make this practical? How do we actually work out our salvation while recognizing that it's God working in us to make this possible? I think the first thing we have to ask is just the simple question Are you working? Paul is able to say such great things about Timothy and Epaphroditus because they've proven their moral qualities and they've been invested in ministry and have worked for the gospel. But have you? Are you working for the gospel? Are you a fellow worker with Paul? Do you evangelize? Do you share your faith with other people? Do you serve those in material need? Do you counsel those who are in spiritual need? Do you pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you pray for those you know that don't yet know Christ? Do you support foreign missions? Let's set the bar really low. Do you serve on a team here at King's Cross? Now, there are other ways that you might be working out your salvation that I haven't named, but if you're not answering yes to any of those, I think it's worth pausing and saying, am I actually working out my salvation? Or do I maybe have an antinomian streak in myself? I think I don't need to worry about doing good because I come and I worship God for his grace. And yes, worship itself is a good thing. I I admit that. I'm really glad you're here. But I think in Philippians 2, Paul is calling us to even more. And I know that because of what he says right after verse 13. So going back to the passage... Starting in verse 14 of Philippians 2, here's what Paul writes. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Verse 16. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I aim to be poured out as a drink even if I am, excuse me, to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul here is trying to chart a path between antinomianism and works righteousness. How do we pursue good works without thinking we earn anything by them? A couple of practical tips, four practical tips I think we can draw out of this. First, Paul is exhorting us to pursue good works as a witness to God's grace, not as a means to earn it. He says in verse 15 and 16 that we are to shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount talks about how how Christians, how his disciples are to be a light, not hidden under a bushel. We are to be a city on a hill. We are supposed to be the salt of the earth. We are supposed to be visible and obvious in what we believe is a testimony to who God is and to who Christ is. Paul's using that language here. We are to shine as lights in the world, but we do that by holding fast to the word of life. And there's a bit of a double meaning here. Word, of course, refers to the written word the gospel, we hold fast to that claim that I am saved by faith alone. It is not by my works. And yet word is also a title for Christ himself in John 1. In the beginning was the word. I am holding fast to Jesus and to his gospel message that I am saved by what he has done alone. And as I hold fast to that, I do good works, shining my light so that other people can come to know the same hope and faith that they may hold fast to the word as well. We pursue good works as a witness to God's grace, not as a means to earning it. Sometimes I think that we imagine God's grace as something like the ocean. It's just vast. It's immense. All this water there. But we still think that maybe I can take like a little water droplet or dropper and go over to a lake and get a tiny little bit of water and then go over to the ocean and add my tiny little contribution. And yes, it's really pathetic compared to all that water, but I did add something. So good for me. It's mostly God's grace, but I'm doing a little something with my works. But I don't think that's the right picture for thinking about the immensity of God's grace. I think a better one would be thinking about God's grace being as immense as every atom that exists. All the matter in the world. That's God's grace. And then we come along and maybe we sculpt something beautiful. Out of wood, out of marble. I can't do any of that, but let's just think in theory. We're sculpting something beautiful. We can't do a single thing without the matter that we're using. And this new sculpture that I've made, that does not add one atom into existence in the universe. I did not add anything to Christ's work. I have not added anything to God's grace. And yet I have done something with that grace, with that matter, and turned it into something beautiful so that somebody can step back and say, wow, not only did you do something good, but look at the like, natural beauty of that marble there. That's incredible. I think that's a better picture of how we add our work to God's. We cling to the word of life while also letting our light shine through that second how do we balance works and grace paul shows uh, shows us to boldly applaud other people's good works while receiving applause with humility look at what he's been doing in this passage look at the way he talks about timothy and epaphroditus they've proven their worth nobody's going to work for you as hard as these guys look at how great they are in ministry And yet, what did he say early in this chapter? Be humble. Put other people above yourself. I think sometimes as Christians, we're a little worried to compliment people for the good work that they're doing because we think we're somehow taking away from God, as if I can do that. No, Paul is giving us an example here, and time and again in his other letters, we can say, hey, Caleb, you're really great as a pastor in this church. We really appreciate you. And yet at the same time, Caleb should be thinking, well, thank you. That's really kind. And yet I know humbly in my heart, I am nothing without God's grace. I think that's the example Paul charts for us here. Third, Philippians 2 shows us that we are to recognize our works are not in vain, but we should anchor our hope in Christ's work. We might lapse into antinomianism because we think, well, what impact can I possibly make in the world? Everything that's needed for salvation, Jesus has already accomplished, and I'm nobody. What am I going to do? There's no point. But that's not really the way that Paul is talking and writing here. Look at verse 15. Paul encourages people. He says, Work that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. He's using the language of justification and adoption here. Justification, that's God declaring us righteous because of what Jesus has done. Why am I innocent? Because Jesus fulfilled the law and paid my debt. Why am I blameless? Because Jesus took my punishment. I did not earn that. I am justified by faith alone. Why am I a child of God? Because through belief, I've been adopted. I'm an adopted son of God the way that Jesus is eternally and naturally son of God. That's all by God's grace, because of faith, because of the work of Christ. It is not because of me. And yet, verse 16, after talking about holding fast to the word of life, so he says, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Everything Paul has comes from Christ, and yet he's looking forward to the second coming of Christ when he can say, this wasn't pointless. It wasn't a waste. Nothing I did was in vain. In fact, it mattered And so I need to be trying to do good and working out my salvation. Fourth and finally, going back to verse 14, Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. The fourth thing I think we can learn is that we should not complain at the need to work, but rejoice that grace is sufficient no matter how our work turns out. Sometimes we're worried about trying to do something good for God because what if it totally crashes and burns? What if I'm not up to the job? What if nothing comes of it? What if I pour all this time and energy and emotions into it and nothing happens? So we're scared. Or maybe we just don't enjoy it. It's not a lot of fun to come work on the setup team here in the morning sometimes. Uh, It's not a lot of fun to get out and do construction work to help people in the community with some of the nonprofits around here that do that. And so we grumble and complain. Don't complain at the need to work, just do it. But we, we don't know how the work's gonna turn out. Look in verse 17. Paul says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. We know how Paul's life ends. He's arrested and he's executed for his Christian faith. I'm sure that's not the plan that Paul had. That wasn't his plan A. You know what? I'm gonna do all this work so that I can spend my last months and years in prison and eventually be killed for it. He says, even if I'm poured out as a drink offering, I'm going to be glad because Paul's salvation doesn't depend on how successful he was as an apostle. And of course, he was quite successful. Paul's salvation depends upon what Christ accomplished on the cross. So in all of these things, we can examine ourselves and answer Paul's challenge from here in verse 12 and 13. And so I encourage you with this at the end of the sermon. Therefore, my beloved members of King's Cross Church, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And as we're preparing to start communion, please join me in prayer to end this sermon. Father, thank you for sending your son. And Christ, thank you for accomplishing everything that needs to be done on the cross so that I have no need to pursue salvation by my own works, but cling only to your word of life. Father, thank you also for sending your spirit, and spirit, thank you for empowering me that I may still do good works and stir my heart and stir the hearts of those around me up to do more good. And I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Mm -hmm.